Hello and welcome to episode 105 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by RJ Anderson. RJ is a writer at CBS Sports and the co-host of the DFA Podcast. You can give him a follow on Twitter at R underscore J underscore Anderson. RJ, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, RJ, I ask everyone this right at the top of the show. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. Well, just growing up, you know, for whatever reason, I really took a liking to the game. And I liked all sports, but, you know, for whatever reason, maybe because it was on seemingly every day during the summer or, you know, every day when I got home from school, I really, really grew to love baseball. And, you know, I've been lucky to be able to do something with it for a career. But, yeah, I guess it was just one of those things where baseball has been present throughout my life. And it's kind of funny because there's really no one else in my family who loves baseball the way I do. It's not like uh, my father or you know anyone close to me was really into the game. So it's kind of weird how it developed. But yeah, I just got into it as a kid and it stuck for you know my lifetime. Were you a collector, a card collector or an autograph collector as a kid? Not really, honestly. Uh, I did have baseball cards and I still have a collection, but I was never hardcore on that aspect. My my uh, obsession was with rosters, funny enough. I got to a certain point as a teenager where I was basically memorizing where players were during their career. So I could tell you like, oh, you know, Damon Buford had played for the Red Sox and he came to the Cubs or what have you. But in terms of cards or, you know, anything like that, no, not really. We're having you on today. We're very excited to have you on to do a regular season recap of the 2018 season. I'm curious what you think the season will be remembered for. Yeah, that's a great question. And obviously, it's probably a little too early to say for certain. But I guess my hope is that the season is remembered for it being the first in which a lot of these talented young players debuted. And, you know, you look at this rookie class and it's just unbelievable how much young talent joined the ranks this season. I mean, you have Shohei Itani, who I believe we're going to talk about in more depth later on. You had Ronald Acuna. You had Juan Soto. Even guys who you know aren't necessarily in that class of phenom uh, debuted this year. You know, Harrison Bader is one of the most interesting players in the majors to me because when he was a prospect, he was considered kind of a well-rounded but average player. He was never considered a speedster certainly wasn't considered an elite level center fielder and yet you watch him play this season and it's like who is this guy you know who, who what happened to Harrison Bader that all the reports told of so you know I find him interesting and late in the season you haven't had a guy like Jeff McNeil who kind of uh, really improved his stock as a prospect in the last year year and a half you know he came up and did some phenomenal things for the Mets so I think there's just so much young talent in the game and so many interesting stories coming uh, to the forefront of the majors that I think when we look back and 10 to 15, 20 years, that might be what we highlight first and foremost. And this has been a trend over the last handful of years that players are coming up younger. They're immediate impact players right away. It used to be a time where players were, you know, even if they came up at 20, they wouldn't be great until they were 24, 25. And now all of a sudden they're great at 21, 22. Young players are producing more wins above replacement than they ever have. That's been a trend that's going up every year. And I don't think it's going to stop. We'll already go off our our notes from that that I sent you earlier. Your colleague at CBS, Jonah Kerry, took a stab at this, but we didn't see one player, one notable young player this year. I guess we could say two in Vlad Guerrero Jr. and Eloy Jimenez because of the service time manipulation issues. How can Major League Baseball fix this problem? Yeah, and my other colleague, Mike Exiza, also took a swung a swing at this, excuse me, and basically outlined that maybe the solution to all of 
or at least a couple of the union's big issues is instituting free agency by age. And if you think about it, say, you know, every player becomes a free agent when they turn 26, no matter what, or 27 or 28, you know, throw whatever age you want on this uh, hypothetical. But once they hit that mark, they become a free agent the following winter. Well, if you do that, for one thing, teams no longer have reason to hold down their 21, 22-year-olds in order to get maximum control over their prime years. But in addition to that, it kind of changes what free agency looks like. You know, Now you're having players hit free agency a little younger in many cases, and their teams are probably more likely to give them these long-term deals. Whereas you know, we saw last winter, and we'll probably see again this winter, if you're over 30, it's going to be very hard for you to nail down a long-term contract. You know, Teams are not wanting to take those five, six-year plunges or what have you. They want to play it safe. They want to play it short, and they want to minimize risk on their side. So you know, I don't know if it's possible or likely or realistic to think that the union and the league would agree to a shift from the current system to an age-based system. And there are probably negative ramifications that we're not even considering but it's something that you might have to think about if you're the union, especially if teams continue to be stubborn in their belief that, yeah, we're not going to give anybody who's over 30 a five-year deal or you know, we're not going to give a pitcher uh, more than two or three or four seasons or something like that because, yeah, it's going to come to a forefront at some point where there's going to be labor strife. And I don't think anyone really wants that, even if at the same time you want the players to get what they deserve because they are the product here and they deserve, you know, they deserve the money. You know what I mean? So – it's going to be interesting to see what happens, and I'm kind of curious to see how free agency looks and how the, you know, the earning system looks. Excuse me, come next CBA and the CBA after next. Attendance was down roughly four percent this year. Do you think there's any real cause for concern there? Yes and no. I think from our perspective, yes, there should be concern, and from the league's perspective, maybe not. And the reason I say that is because we've seen some of these teams come out and flat out admit that they are trying to cater to experience seekers and to the higher end consumer. You know, they're not necessarily worried about me or you taking our family to a game. They're worried about the people who can, you know, plop down the money for the big seats and, you know, the suites and whatnot. So I think we should be concerned if baseball is basically going to price out the family of four or, you know, the college student or the high school student or whatever. I at the same time, though, I don't think baseball is necessarily thinking that way. I think they're definitely chasing the profits, trying to chase the big money and figuring that it all come out in the wash. And I don't know that that's really what they should be doing. I don't think it's necessarily the right thing to do. But my guess is they might outwardly say, yeah, we're a little concerned about the attendance. You know, obviously we would like it to be trending the other direction. But if the money's there, they're probably not that concerned about it. So much of the off-season hype this year was dedicated to Shohei Otani, two-way player and a team actually giving him a chance to be a two-way player in the majors. And if it wasn't for an injury, he did accomplish that. While his pitching was limited because of his injury, he was an extremely productive hitter and he was very effective as a pitcher as well. Do you think his development as a two-way player will change his success as a two-way player, will change how other two-way talents are developed in the systems. Yeah, I think this opens the door. And I was skeptical coming into the season. You were probably skeptical too that it would work, right? I was, and I was actually more confident in his pitching abilities than his hitting. I I didn't see a 900 OPS coming, but there you go. Right, yeah, that's what all the reports said, right? That he was going to be potentially a number two starter, but that his bat 
might limit him to you know platoon uh excuse me platoon usage or something like that and instead no oops <laughs> so yeah i think he i think his success kind of opens the door it gives a blueprint to teams like the rays who are developing brendan mckay as a two-way player and it certainly it certainly provides some interesting uh considerations i know last week james fagan i believe wrote that matt davidson would approach the white Sox about potentially coming to camp next year with an eye on not only being a position player which he's been throughout his career but also maybe a pitcher so there's going to be some interesting developments to come from this and it's just kind of crazy to think about where baseball is right now and imagine going back 10 years and saying in the 2018 season you're going to have a guy who both pitches and hits you're going to have a switch pitcher you're going to have arguably like the best teenage hitter of all time. You're going to have arguably the best player of all time in Mike Trout. And, you know, just keep listing these marvels off. And it's just crazy to think that that's what we're at right now. We have so much amazing talent and so many ridiculous storylines. Uh, you know, baseball, the business has a lot of issues, but baseball in terms of the talent and, you know, the storylines, it's just in a great place. And with Otani, I think we're going to, yes, continue to see – uh, organizations try out these two-way guys for the sake of, you know, kind of redesigning the rosters and kind of freeing up a roster spot. And also just seeing what what is a ball player capable of doing? Because I'll be honest, I didn't think he was going to do this. I didn't think he was going to get anywhere close to this. So it really opens up the imagination and can open up some really interesting possibilities down the road if teams do embrace this line of thinking. I'm curious what your favorite storylines of the season have been, not just the storylines as a writer, but the storylines as a consumer, as a watcher as well. Yeah, well, I kind of tipped my hand earlier when I, and just now when I talked about, uh, you know, various positives, various young players and whatnot. I'm going to throw a couple of others out there, though. Johnny Venner's comeback, uh, just phenomenal to see him not only get back on a big league mound, but do so with success and you know he's probably going to pitch in the postseason and that's just really cool to me uh in addition to that uh williams a studio i think you're going to ask me about a fun fact later on uh, he's up there he's just something we're really not accustomed to seeing anymore so kind of cool to see him come up for a twins team that was out of the race and you know give people a reason to tune in uh, on a team level i really enjoyed the atlanta braves being a year early i'm a sucker for a team arriving a year early and they have so much young talent. Again, it just goes back to what I've mentioned throughout. But they also have guys like Freddie Freeman, who frankly have kind of been underrated throughout their careers. I mean, Freeman is just a phenomenal hitter, absurdly talented. And it seems like he gets overlooked because here recently he's played on some pretty bad Braves teams. Uh, the A's and the Rockies, they also fit into this. I mean, the Rockies, I can't really make sense of that team. Throughout the year, they had a negative run differential. And yet, here they are in the postseason over a team in Arizona and some of these other uh, National League teams who I thought had more talent on paper. So I'm a sucker for, you know, the unexpected, and I'm really into those storylines. And I guess we should also throw uh, the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry into here. I thought the Yankees were the better team entering the season, but I don't know. I guess there is something romantic about spending the summer into the fall wondering, you know, will be the Yankees or the Red Sox. And I guess it kind of takes me back to my childhood when I grew up, you know, during the 90s and whatnot. That was always, you know, the big story, uh, not just in the American League East, but in the American League and maybe baseball overall. So it was kind of kind of neat to be back in that line of thinking, even if you're, you know, a Rays, Jays or Orioles fan, you're probably not too inclined to agree on that point. 
Let's talk about the Yankees and the Red Sox briefly. Just as a general concept, going into the season, there were seven super teams. There were two in the AL East and then what we thought would be the division winners in all the other divisions. And the six out of those seven ended up making the playoffs. The Nationals were the only one of those super teams that fell off. I feel like baseball, one of the things it always had going for it was that it was so unpredictable. And it's different from the NBA, and I like basketball a lot, but I feel like one of the things that people like about basketball is that it is predictable. The best teams end up playing each other every year. But baseball, that's not always the case, at least when it comes down to the playoffs. Do you think that the best teams winning out, the teams that we know are the best teams in spring training, winning the way we think they do for the most part, is good for the game? I don't know if it's necessarily good for the game, and I will say that I think it actually creates something that's bad for the game, even though it within itself is not uh, necessarily bad for the game. And that's how a lot of teams have used these super teams as a reason not to try. And, you know, when we came into spring training, about a third of the league was seemingly not trying. And that was part of the reason behind the cold winter. Uh, Teams just weren't interested in signing big league free agents if they weren't going to compete. I mean, I think the Pittsburgh Pirates went the entire winter without adding anyone on a big league contract as a free agent, I mean. So that's just absurd to think about because, you know what, the Pirates were sort of competitive this season. I mean, you know, they finished, I think they finished closer or right around the same um, distance from the postseason as the Washington Nationals and Philadelphia Phillies. And those two teams were viewed as being competitive as well. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a bad thing. And I don't know. I'm not necessarily against the idea of having super teams. I'm just against some of the negative ramifications that have come with it, uh, specifically with regards to how teams are not trying and maybe what that does to the free agent market and what that does also to the trade market. Because, you know, a lot of people, how do I phrase this? I guess I'd say if you go back to the trade market, right around that time is when the NBA free agency period was happening and you just saw all this excitement with all these you know, unpredictable moves and all these uh, big signings and all. And you kind of compared that to what was going on at baseball's trade deadline. And it didn't feel like baseball had the same oomph to it. And that's in part because there were so many teams already out of it. And yet, you know, they hadn't loaded up on rental players and they weren't necessarily moving uh, anyone. So it kind of felt like, okay, where's the excitement here? Because part of following a a league and part of being a huge fan of a sport is getting excited about roster moves. And, you know, if having these super teams is kind of robbing us of that uh, at the deadline and during the winter, then maybe it is a bad thing overall. And, you know, maybe it's not just, oh, these are some of the byproducts of this. Maybe it's at its core a bad thing. But I guess I just haven't talked myself into thinking that just the presence of having three or four uh, super teams is necessarily a bad thing. Though, again, maybe, you know, when you have five, six or seven, then you start getting to start getting into that territory where it's only a bad thing and there's not a whole lot good coming from it. So I know that's a confusing answer. I'm kind of talking out in my head here as we go, but I guess I would say I'm not necessarily opposed to super teams. I just don't like some of what's popped up and it makes me think that, yeah, maybe uh, having more than two or three super teams is a bad thing for the league as a whole. What do you think we can learn from the success of the Rays and the A's this year? that we still can't predict baseball. Uh, You know, I was very wrong on the Rays. I actually thought the A's would be a dark horse wild card contender, excuse me. And, of course, I say that, but if you had given me the roster today and said this is what it's going to look like for the final month, I would have been out on them as well. So, you know, can't toot my own horn too much there. With the Rays, you know, I really feel like the biggest thing I got wrong about them was – the production they got from a couple of guys I considered slap hitters. You know, Malik Smith, Joey Wendell, Matt Duffy, 
guys who don't really walk, uh, don't really hit for power, and didn't seem to have good or elite hit tools, I am generally not a fan of that profile, especially when it's come, you know, when it's coming at second or third base. And you look at some of the comparables, and usually it's not a skill set that really works in the major leagues, but you know, to those players' credit, and perhaps to the Rays' credit, they were able to get pretty good production out of all three. And, you know, that went from three uh, question marks or black holes in their lineup to three above-average hitters. That'll do it for you, right? You know, that helps to explain why they were so much better than I anticipated. I think 11 wins or so. So, you know, kudos to them. And the pitching staff was really interesting to watch, too, because, you know, they ended the year, and I was like, okay, you know, supposedly – to do a four-man rotation with a bullpen day every fifth game and then it got really extreme throughout the year and i think after at some point you know after the uh, archer trade they were down to basically one starting pitcher so that was kind of interesting to watch as well i know we're going to talk about the opener probably next so i don't want to get too far down that road but it shows that you know there are still ways to win games and there's still value in trying even if you know, we have the presence of these super teams because, you know, we talked about the Nationals being one of those super teams. Where are they right now? You know, the the uh, National League wildcard game is hours away and they're not in it and they're not in the postseason. So you never know, even when these teams look really good, like the Dodgers did, and like the Cubs did, and like the Nationals did, and even the Yankees. And I know it's not quite fair to throw the Yankees in that bin, but, you know, sometimes these super teams are still vulnerable and things still happen in baseball that we don't predict and that we can't foresee. So there's always value in trying, even if it doesn't seem like it entering the spring. The opener did make a big impact this year. The Rays started using it. They started winning and other teams started using it as well. I think we got over a third of the teams in the league used it at one point during the season. I like it. I think it makes more sense. I think it gives the potential for starters to go deeper, uh, at least frontline starters, if that's what they want, or at least later into the game. What are your thoughts on the opener in general? And do you think it's a trend that's here to stay? Well, I think it's a trend that's going to be embraced more, and we're actually going to see the Oakland A's use it uh, tomorrow night in the wild card game. So this is kind of its first appearance on the national stage, or at least in the postseason. So that's going to be interesting to watch. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Brewers do it at some point too, or at least go to a bullpen game uh, based on some of their back-end options. But I'm of two minds of it. Uh, when they first introduced the opener, I was sort of timid because while it makes some sense on paper – I didn't know if it was worth the nightmare logistically and even pragmatically. You know, you're asking some of your pitchers to do things they've never done before, and you're also potentially messing with their money. And I know Zach Cozart got mocked a little bit when he raised those concerns. And I know that I think Zach Rinke also raised these concerns that, you know, this is going to mess with the arbitration system a little bit. And if this starts costing guys money, like say Ryan Yarborough, I mean, if he was a starter and he had the same one loss record, same ERA, and so on and so forth, uh, he'd probably be in for a pretty good arbitration case down the road. As it stands, how is this going to affect him? I don't really know. And I hope for his sake it doesn't affect him at all, but you know, it's something to consider. And so, you know, that side of it's kind of a negative, and you sort of worry about that. From the side of me that likes, you know, innovation and likes seeing uh, new strategies employed. Yeah, I like that. And it makes a certain kind of sense, right, to use one of these number five or number four starters and have them avoid, you know, the best hitters in the lineup and then insert them. And I even throw this out there. And I've been toying with this a little bit. I haven't wrote about it. And I'm probably missing something very obvious. But it would almost seem to me like the best way to deploy Otani would be in conjunction with an opener. And the reason I say that is because, okay, if you're the Angels, you can start a game without a DH, 
you can have a middle reliever, uh, you know, toss the first inning or two until his spot in the order comes up. You're probably batting him ninth. At that point, you insert Otani as a pinch hitter. He gets his at bat, then he goes to the mound. And say we're, you know, in the third inning, if Otani throws, you know, five, six, seven innings, that probably gets you through the rest of the game. He gets all the at bats from that spot. He's if you're batting him ninth, he's technically your second leadoff hitter. And, you know, you don't have to worry about well, for one thing, you don't have to worry about him missing a high leverage at bat if you do it right this way. Whereas if you just started him, he'd probably miss, you know, his last at bat of the game or what have you. And in addition to that, you're still curbing his innings. So you're not asking him to throw 200 innings. You're, you know, asking him to throw, you know, six times 25 or however many times you run him out there. And on top of that, you're getting about 50 extra plate appearances or perhaps more if you're just starting him 25 times as a pitcher and he's still sitting the night before and, you know, the night after whatever as a hitter. So, you know, I think that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. And I don't know if the Angels would ever do this. I don't know if they can realistically ask him to hit and pitch in the same game outside of NL Parks. And I don't know if they would be open to doing it with an opener or anything like that. But that's something I've been toying around with lately as we kind of talk about what Otani's future looks like and uh, whether he'll ever be, you know, a, a workhorse starting pitcher in the majors or if they'll continue to start him once a week or, you know, what have you. And obviously, you know, we're probably a full year plus away from having this discussion on a realistic level. But it's something I've been thinking about and, you know, credit that to the Rays and also, you know, to some of these other teams who are embracing the opener and making it part of our go-to conversation rather than just sort of a fringe issue. This season might be the last for several notable players, Adrian Beltre, Ichiro, Joe Maurer, Chase Utley, David Wright. What are your thoughts on that group? If you have any individual memories of anybody in that group, and how many Hall of Famers do you think come from that collection? Well, let me tell you, it makes me feel very old because I was I was 10, 11 years old when Ichiro came over to the United States. So for his big league career to basically be over, I know he might play in the opening series next year. That just... That makes me feel so old. And, you know, David Wright, obviously, I was young when he came up. And, you know, we can keep listing names off here. But it's a really impressive group. And I think that almost everyone you named has a compelling Hall of Fame case. I mean, Ichiro is a shoe-in. David Wright is the best player in Mets history if you look at basically any metric of meaning. So I think he should be a Hall of Famer. And I think the voters will probably show sympathy toward him with regards to how his career ended, you know, it's not really his fault that injuries uh, took the tail end of his career away from him. And if he had continued playing on, he was basically right there. When you look at Jaws and some of these other measures compared to the average Hall of Fame third baseman, uh, Joe Maurer, I think you got to put him in. I mean, he was an offensive force behind the plate. Again, concussions kind of made him move to first base. And I know his numbers in recent years were underwhelming compared to the positional standards, but his peak was outstanding. And I think you have to give uh, some sympathy and some benefit of the doubt to a guy who has to move off a position like catcher because of concussions or other injury issues. You know, I don't think we can treat that like, oh, you know, he was just injury prone. I think we have to treat that as, you know what, he moved for the best of his long-term health. And given what he had done behind the plate, I think he merits inclusion. Uh, Adrian Beltre is over 3,000 hits. He's going to go down as if not the best defensive third baseman of his generation, probably the best or second best, one of the best defensive third basemen of all time, seemed like a wonderful teammate, had a heck of a run to end his career offensively. I mean, I know this year he finished below uh, 100 OPS plus, but before then it was like eight straight seasons over 100 for a guy in his mid to late 30s. That's just crazy to me and uh, really speaks to his all-around talent. 
And who am I missing here? I know I just mentioned oh, Utley. Utley is the number one. And I think Utley probably is not going to get into the Hall of Fame, at least not right away. But he was arguably, if not the best you know, second baseman of his generation, then maybe the second best second baseman of his generation. And just a really good ball player. So, yeah, there is a lot of talent, unfortunately, checking out from uh, baseball right now. But, you know, as we mentioned earlier, there's so much young talent coming in that, you know, we're going to – discover new David Wrights and we're going to discover, you know, new Ichiro's and just new outstanding players. But it is still a little sad to see some of these guys go, especially in cases like Wright and maybe Mauer where it's a health thing as much as an age thing. Yeah, and I think Beltre and Ichiro are locks. I think Mauer and Otley will linger on the ballot but probably won't get in. David Wright, I think, is going to go. I think a reasonable comp for him when he comes on the ballot is Nomar Garcia-Para. And Nomar got bounced, I think, his second year on it. He stayed on for one and he got bounced. Wright's going to have a hard time. And that's a shame because he was so good and he is really close. But he, he's not going to get there. That's a fair boy. And I don't have Nomar's numbers in front of me. But I would also add that I believe historically third base is sort of an underrepresented position in the Hall of Fame. So... Yeah, you know, if we can get Beltre and we can get right in there, and I know Scott Rowland's probably not going to make it, but you know, he was a heck of a player as well. You know, some of these, some of these third basemen, they deserve more recognition than they're getting, and uh, it's unfortunate that the Hall of Fame seems biased against third basemen for whatever reason. What's your favorite fun fact or stat from the year? I'm going to go with Williams' studio, and I know this might not be fun for other people, but. In a day and age where strikeouts are continuing to rise and, you know, we're seeing more and more teams turn to these three true outcome players, a studio came up and he walked twice and struck out three times in 97 plate appearances. So 97 trips to the plate, 93 at-bats, two walks, three strikeouts. He's also hit by a pitch. So call it six non-batted ball events and about 100 plate appearances. That is insane in this day and age. Yeah, and he's uh, he's a, an effectively wild favorite as well. And he did give a reason to watch the Twins at the end of the year, so that's good. I love the Chris Davis 247, fun fact. Four straight years of hitting 247. I know that's not this year specific, but that he hits 247 every year is so random. It's amazing. Who are your award winners for this year? Here's the thing. I really don't care about awards, but because of my job, I kind of have to fake it. So... I guess we'll start with the American League. Do you want Rookie of the Year, Manager of the Year, too, or are you only concerned about the, the meat and potatoes, so to speak? I certainly don't care about Manager of the Year. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, I think I give Otani the Rookie of the Year in the American League. You know, just what he did is we've basically never seen anything like that before, and he was just so good at both aspects of his job. I don't know how voters are going to weigh his playing time. I think you have to be a little bit sympathetic toward that you know, his playing time aspect because that's what the team wanted him to do. You know, they wanted to sit him and they wanted to uh, play conservatively with his body. So I I give him the benefit of the doubt, even if he's not the war leader. You know, he was so good. He was right there that, yeah, I'll give him the Rookie of the Year award. AL MVP, I'm fine with Betts winning. I know Trout and Ramirez and even Lindor and Chapman have strong cases. But, you know what, Betts had the production and he also has the narrative uh, advantage by playing on you know the best team in the American League record wise so yeah fine give it to him AL Cy Young I went back and forth on this you know I really like the old school workhorse starting pitchers you know James Shields was my favorite pitcher growing up I love the guys who go out there give you 200 plus innings a season unfortunately I know you know that era seems to be 
uh, passing right between my fingers. So I'm fine with Chris Sale or Blake Snell winning, even though innings wise, you know, they don't really compare to some of the other options out there like Verlander, Kluber, so on and so forth. So, you know, I'm fine with basically any of those guys. I don't really have a strong case to make for any of them. And I also wouldn't be disappointed if any of them win. So I guess that's a good way of saying whatever, you know, uh, in the National League, you know, Rookie of the Year, Acuna. I don't think I really need to uh, explain that one too much. Although Juan Soto obviously had a fantastic season. And Walker Buehler doesn't get talked about enough. I know he just had that big start last night. But he is really fun to watch. And I'm excited to see him for the next few years out there in L.A. Uh, in terms of NL MVP, I think Christian Yelich is a good pick. I'm fine if someone wants to make a strong case for Javier Baez or Paul Goldschmidt or Matt Carpenter or whomever. Or whomever. You know, Lorenzo Cain also deserves mention here. But, yeah, I'm fine with uh, Yelich winning. Just, he's a hitting machine. He's been one of my favorite hitters to watch for years. And what he's doing this season, almost winning the Triple Crown and just in general – you know, stepping his game up to these, you know, to this level is insane. And, you know, you think back to that trade the Marlins made, and they probably want that one back, right? I mean, it didn't look great at the time, but they probably really want that one back right now. I think they want the whole offseason back. <laughs> Man, I hope so. Oh, gosh, that was awful. It's horrible for those fans there. I know people like to joke about, oh, Miami doesn't have fans. They do have fans. You know, I grew up a Rays fan. I know how it feels to not only have people joke about how you don't exist, but also have your team consistently trade away your favorites or even guys who, you know, if not necessarily your favorites are super productive over money reasons. And sometimes they take bad deals in return just to dump the money. Well, you know, it's just the worst feeling as a fan, I think uh, outside of, you know, perhaps your team acquiring a guy who seems like a piece of garbage or what have you. Uh, But back on the awards trail, I guess the only thing that's left is NL Cy Young yeah, give it to DeGrom. I think it's going to be pretty cool to see a guy who doesn't necessarily have uh, you know, a shiny one-loss record getting the award. Just because you know, it's 2018, we should be past looking at one-loss record to determine if a guy's a good pitcher or not. We all know it's a confluence of factors, many of which are beyond the pitcher's control. And didn't I think DeGrom gave up more than three runs in exactly one start all season. And that is just mind-blowing to me. I don't think I could do that in a video game. No, I'm terrible at the show. I, I used to be good at games, and now I, I can't do anything with them. I can't hit, that's for sure. Right, right, yes. And I think that's a sign that we're old. When we can no longer play well in baseball video games, then we're just old. Yeah, bags of dust. Why not DeGrom for MVP? <laughs> I honestly don't have a strong case. In my head, I always separate the awards, MVP going to position players, Cy Young going to pitchers. I know there's no actual rules for that. Uh, at the same time, I'm not voting for the awards. And like I said, when uh, we started this this part of the uh, show, I just I don't have a strong uh, emotional attachment to these awards. I don't really have an investment. So for me, it's just easier to separate those two out. And I would be fine if they came out and just made it a hitter-only award, you know, the hitter equivalent of a sigh, and then you combine pitchers and hitters for the MVP. But I don't think anyone really takes the Hank Aaron Award as seriously as maybe they want you to. So unfortunately, you know, it's not a perfect method on my part, and like I said, I know there's no rule stating that, but that's just what I do in my head to help make sense of the whole thing. Lastly, before I let you go, dumb prediction time. Who makes the World Series and who wins? You know, I just did my picks last night as part of the you know staff predictions, and uh, I don't actually remember who I said, which is probably not a good sign, but... Entering the season, I had uh, Yankees, Nationals of the Nationals winning. That's clearly not happening. So I think I might have chosen, I want to say I might have chosen Yankees or I think it was 
probably Yankees or Red Sox versus Dodgers, I want to say. And I guess I got to go with, you know, the Red Sox. I think that's who I chose. I know I feel stupid now. I should look this up, but I think I chose Red Sox. And if I didn't chose, uh, if I didn't choose the Red Sox, then whoever I chose in the staff picks is who I'm standing by. And I won't take any credit if the Red Sox actually win the World Series. Very good. I'm going with Red Sox Brewers with the Red Sox to win. You've been listening to RJ Anderson. RJ is a writer at CBS Sports and the co-host of the DFA podcast. You can give him a follow on Twitter at R underscore J underscore Anderson. RJ, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Of course. Thank you for having me.